This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I have a special announcement for you today. This year marks the 25th anniversary of Slate. And for a limited time only, we're offering our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from shows like Culture Gab Fest, Slow Burn, and Big Mood Little Mood with Daniel Lavery. For the past quarter century, Slate has been covering all the major news events, from elections to social issues to historic court decisions. Our culture shows have debated if things are sexist, named the best summer songs, and explained the latest TikTok trends. If we become a part of your listening routines, we ask that you support our work by joining Slate Plus. Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash spoiler plus to keep us going for another 25 years. Again, we're giving you $25 off an annual membership through October 31st, so sign up now at slate.com slash spoiler plus. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! No, I am the father of What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hello, and welcome to Slate Spoiler Specials. I'm Sam Adams, the senior editor at Slate, and I'm joined today by Laura Miller, Slate's books and culture columnist. Laura, hello. Hi, Sam. Um, It's great uh, to be here to talk about Midnight Mass, and um, we may also get some small contributions in the background from my cat, Gigi, who is either really upset that I won't let her into the room with me while I'm doing this, or strongly objects to the fate of the cats of Crockett Island. (laughs) Today we're spoiling Midnight Mass, the latest Netflix series from The Haunting of Hill House's Mike Flanagan. Flanagan's recent work has all been adaptations of one sort or another, movies of Stephen King's Gerald's Game and Dr. Sleep, King's sequel to The Shining, The Haunting of Hill House, a loose series adaptation of Shirley Jackson's novel, and The Haunting of Bly Manor, an even looser adaptation of Henry James' The Turn of the Screw. But this time he's telling an original story set in the isolated community of Crockett Island, a dying fishing village that has seen better days. Its main character is Riley Flynn, a wayward son who struck it rich in the big city and then ruined his life in a drunk driving accident. He's come home after a stint in prison to lick his wounds and finds the island falling in thrall to a charismatic new priest, Father Paul. But Father Paul is not what he seems, and neither are the miracles that are stirring the souls of the faithful. We're going to spoil exactly why that is in just a moment. But first, Laura, what did you think of Midnight Mass? I love this. Of all the uh, series that he's done, well, of the three series that he's done, uh, this is by far my favorite. It felt much tighter than the the two other adaptations. And I'm sure part of that has to do with the fact that I wasn't constantly comparing it to some original literary work. It, 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 there's a little bit of Stephen King in this, but um, the, the interest in Catholicism and, and 
and the depiction of this incredibly insular community felt really distinctively Flanaganian to me. <laughs> yeah, Flanagiana. Um, yeah, I I agree with you. I mean, this is it has. For me, it, it shares a lot of the flaws of particularly the other series that uh, Mike Flanagan has done for Netflix, which just say it is kind of long. Um, there's a, a the special uh, fondness for slash weakness uh, for sort of quite long uh, monologues, often sort of laid <laughs> end to end. Uh, but I feel like it works in this series in a way that it doesn't. Partly that's um, he just has a better forgive me for saying so to the other cast, but a better class of actor um, dealing with the monologues, especially uh, Hamish Linklater, who plays Father Paul and often, you know, is giving literal sermons um, in this. And also because uh, I think because this is an original story, as you say, he isn't sort of constantly throwing in these Easter eggs to stuff where it often kind of feels like he's, you know, punching a little bit above his weight. This is, you know, on the one hand, a deeply personal story, uh, about addiction and Catholicism, both of which play uh, significant roles in, in Mike Flanagan's life. But it's also, in that Stephen King way, kind of just a potboiler. The intersection of those two things is really where Flanagan is sort of at his best. And I think this is a story that, that starts there rather than, than having to work its way from some, work its way there from some literary antecedent. Right. I mean, especially if you don't, you know, if you're attached to the the two original works that the two previous series were based on, you're constantly seeing the missed opportunities of what Shirley Jackson or Henry James did. And this, um, you know, he doesn't. You know, you're. I, I don't know. It, it, for me, it was. It was. It felt very much truer to who he is and what he cares about than to like try to find some way to weave in like the lonely neurotic character of Hill House or the lonely neurotic character of 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 of, of uh, Turn of the Screw because. He's just not really actually that good at lonely neurotic characters. <laughs> so, um, so this, you know, this, I, I mean, Hamish Linkletter is so amazing in this. I mean, this is uh, the depiction of somebody of, who has a deep faith and in, in almost no way do, is that made repellent. Although there is the character Bev, whose, whose faith, if you can call it that, is repellent. You, you can see why he needs to believe that he is bringing a, a salvation and a miracle to his flock. How this thing that has happened to him, this catastrophe that's happened to him, he has to sort of convince himself that it is God's will and that it will have this uh, glorious outcome. And all of that is so perfectly sort of wrapped into who that character is and what his values are as a good person. I mean, he's a good person, even though he, he causes all these deaths, ultimately. Right. I mean, you mentioned um, the Stephen King uh, underpinnings here, and I think um, the easiest way to just spoil what the whole series about is to uh, say that one of the King works that this most obviously draws on is Salem's Lot. 
Um, you know, Father Paul is, and it, the series takes basically three out of its seven hours to tell you this. Um, and maybe other people will spot this sooner or no going in. I watched it um, at the point where it went up on Netflix's screener site. It was just the new Mike Flanagan thing. So I was interested in it. And at that point, it didn't even have like a thumbnail picture. It just had sort of a black square with midnight mass in it. So I knew nothing about it going in. Um, and so, so Father Paul uh, comes back. He is um, replacing the town's sort of vanished uh, 80-year-old Monsignor Pruitt who left um, in, in, the, in the midst of a you know, pretty serious um, mental decline, um, left to go on a sort of final pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Um, and in his place returns Father Paul, who we eventually find out at the end of the third episode, is Monsignor Pruitt, um, who has been rejuvenated by his exposure to the blood of this sort of ancient undead creature who, uh, for lack of a better word, one might call a vampire, um, has returned him to his, basically cut his age in half, I guess. Um, he has brought this creature, who he believes is an angel of God, um, back to Crockett Island to convert the faithful um, which is doing by slipping vampire blood into the communion wine and basically sort of slowly, uh, I guess, literally converting um, the entire island into vampire people. Uh, and then uh, kind of goes goes where you might expect from there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things that uh, I found very cool about this is I don't think the word vampire is ever even mentioned in the series or maybe once. Um you know, vampires, along with zombies, belong to this uh, horror movie motif that I feel like is a piece of gum that has been chewed until it has absolutely no flavor left in it at all. And if someone had said, oh, it's a vampire story, I would have maybe thought two or three times before watching it. I would watch it anyway, because I, Flanagan is so interesting. But... Um, but you realize just how flexible that vampire metaphor is. I mean, in recent years, it's been deployed as metaphors for sex or for sexually transmitted diseases or for all kinds of things. But obviously, there's a lot of similarities to Catholicism in it from the ritual drinking of blood to the idea that you will gain eternal life from doing this to even um, the rejuvenation of the characters, the re their return to their sort of the prime of their life is something that I remember as a young Catholic being told would would be your your body at it in its best form would be restored to you at the resurrection, and so even that idea is very it, it's it's really Catholicism is so embedded in so much of the way that he uses the the vampire curse or virus or whatever it is. There's a scene where. Um, Dr. Gunning tries to explain it as a virus. <laughs> it's just like, you're like, no, there's a guy with leathery bat wings flying around. There's no way that this is not a virus. <laughs> that was hilarious. Right. Well, yeah, that's, that's the sort of Annabeth Gish uh, character who, 
Again, we're spoiling the whole thing. Uh, We eventually find out is Father Paul's um, illegitimate daughter um, is explaining sort of the progress of the the gradual vampirization of these people, basically in terms of viral load. You know, you have a certain amount of vampire blood in you, but, uh, you know, there's a sort of a point of no return, but where, you know, you're more vampire than person and you kind of can't be converted back, but... You know, up until that point, like you're sort of maybe getting a little bit younger, feeling a little bit more spry. Um, in the case of, of the first, you know, quote unquote miracle on the island, you're a person who has been um, paralyzed by a bullet to the spine who can suddenly walk again. So, you know, those sorts of things are, are happening, but you have it sort of, you know, irretrievably uh, converted. Um, and then there, you know, is apparently a point at which the the you know, the vampire blood like takes over. Um, so fortunately that is only, you know, one monologue in the middle of the episode to just not become like the crux of the end game with the thing where they're like, whatever, giving people blood transfusions or trying to come up with a vaccine or something. It, it, I mean, that is, I think um, in, in a series with, you know, not a few somewhat clunky passages in it. That is, is I think, by far one of the clunkiest. Let me just argue, Sam, that that I think that that scene is deliberately ridiculous because, you know, we've mostly been seeing a long story about how various people incorporate faith into their lives or deal with their faith or their guilt or whatever. All of these sort of metaphysical and emotional issues. And... Um, when the doctor tries to explain what's happening, it's so inadequate that I, I feel like that's his nod to the role that reason plays in any of this. Like it's none of these these experiences or these feelings have really a rational component at all, however powerful they are. And so when she says all of that, you're just looking at her like, oh, nice try, Doc. Um, I, I, I think that's I think that's intentional. I think we're meant to see how inadequate um, science is to answer these questions. So it's sort of like the the equivalent of um, like the, the psychiatrist's speech at the end of, of Psycho or something like that, where you know, Hitchcock put that in, but literally referred to it as a, as a kind of a hat grabber because he just expected people to be like packing up and leaving the theater and not <laughs> yeah. paying any attention to that. Yeah. And also, I, th- I think one of the things I really do appreciate about the series is the lack of over exposition. You know, there isn't a lot of time spent explaining why the cats were dead at the beginning or any assortment of things that happen in the story. They're allowed to be something mysterious that you think about and you then you realize, oh, the quote angel unquote has been feeding off of these cats that used to overrun the island and um, that's what he, it was subsisting on un- until uh, this moment when everybody is going to be converted, um, and but you don't get anyone sitting and then this and the, which is a thing that I really really hate in um, in horror movies. Right. I mean, one thing, one one you know particular aspect that's so effective. You mentioned the character of Bev, who is is kind of a lay minister in uh, St. Patrick's, which is this kind of 
you know, tiny one-room clabbered church, which is the only house of worship on Crockett Island. Um, and she is a, a very sort of, you know, sanctimonious, um, holier-than-thou, uh, fuss-budget kind of up in, in everybody's business. Um, and so is, you know, happy to see Father Paul um, come back and sort of, I guess, bring some I wasn't doing this as a pun, but there it is. Bring some new blood um, <laughs> in, into the church. Um, but also, you know, scolding him for kind of wearing the wrong chasuble during ordinary time and um, stuff like that. And you realize at some point, three or four episodes in, that she has known, you know, that uh, Father Paul as Monsignor Pruitt for uh, days, weeks, you know, some significant amount of time. Yeah. Um, but you know, you never, it never kind of shows you the moment of revelation when, um, you know, she realizes that he looks like months, exactly like Monsignor Pruitt did 40 years ago. You just realize that she has been not only knowing this, but kind of colluding in this, uh, plot he's doing to, in Father Paul's mind, you know, bring the people of Crockett Island, uh, to eternal life. Um, and eventually, the, you know, the plan is to to spread it even farther beyond that to the world at large and basically, you know, spread this vampire plague um, all over the place. But, he, you know, you, you see kind of when other people figure it out, but she is the pivotal character and he kind of hides that from you. And I think that's really effective because it just makes you wonder, uh, you know, thinks, think back on a lot of things you've seen and wonder, you know, kind of what you missed from what was really going on. Yeah, when did Bev discover this? When did she realize that that he he's the original Monsignor? When did she understand exactly what the nature of his uh, rejuvenation is and what the plan is? It, we don't know how it was explained to her. If she had ever seen this creature, this angel, um, at at some early point, we don't know. But I mean, the thing about a, a character like Bev, who is, I don't, she's not a deacon, because I don't think that, that the Catholic Church has deacons, although I could never keep track of all of these titles. But, you know, she sort of functions as the priest's wife, except for obviously the sexual and romantic part of that. I mean, she's a figure who uh, is common in a lot of churches, a woman who is blocked from power within the institution, who has this sort of informal power in that she sort of runs the uh, the cleric's life. So, she, you know, she, I mean, the thing about her is that she's, she's, seems like a religious fanatic in that she is um, constantly quoting scripture and talking about which members of the community are anathema, but really she's just power mad. And, uh, you know, obviously her role is to... um, to represent the degree to which like religion is just deployed for personal power. Um, And she imagines herself on the right hand of, of, of the angel going forward, probably ruling the world (laughs) at some point. Right. Well, and it's, it's, I mean, pretty strongly implied that because Monsignor Pruitt has basically been kind of doddering for years um, that she has been the one really, running the church she is at one point um 
accused of sort of masterminding this plan. There's a whole backstory where there was a kind of a, you know, an oil spill around Crockett Island that messed with the island's um, livelihood of fishing. Um, and then there was a big um, settlement with the oil company where people had the option of, um, you know, sort of basically giving up their livelihood, but taking these, you know, payments from the company. And she kind of masterminded, you know, most of Crockett Island's population, you know, something like three quarters of the 400 people who live there, um, taking the money and leaving. And then, you know, she convinced them to, you know, whatever tithe their portion of that and then build this brand new fancy Monsignor Pruitt rec center that the island doesn't need for the people who don't live there anymore. Um, so kind of gutted the community in order to, you know, siphon off some amount of cash purportedly to build this new rec center. But, it, you know, it's also implied some of that um, undoubtedly ended up with her right. as well. Um, but that's, you know, a, some of what gets gets mixed in here is um, there's this, you know, very personal aspect that I mentioned to it where uh, Mike Flanagan uh, chose the um, the kind of press cycle for this um, this show to reveal that he is uh, currently in his you know third year of sobriety for alcoholism, um, which you know makes you look at for me like the addict characters, the alcoholic Ewan McGregor in Doctor Sleep, um, Oliver Jackson Cohn's uh, heroin addict in The Haunting of Hill House, to you know think of those characters in a different way um, that clearly plays into. Riley, who, um, like Mike Flanagan, is a recovering alcoholic, like Mike Flanagan, is sort of a lapsed former Catholic altar boy. But then there's this, this larger, um, and I guess we could talk about to the extent to which this is successful, but clearly one of the things that's going on here is this is, you know, an allegory about um, religious fanaticism kind of run amok, uh, torn loose from it's moorings, you know, any sense, any kind of true sense of um, faith or humility or service and really just becomes about power serving its own ends. And eventually, um, let me get to the end of the story, kind of um, consuming this community as a whole and basically destroying it forever. But also, I, I mean, one of the things that makes this so powerful, I think, is that that it has, you know, a, a complex vision of what faith can do. Yes, Father Paul is really kind of caught up in the sort of vampire mission, even though we don't know that. He starts talking about some of the more militant language in the Bible, um, you know, and, and that causes Mildred, um, who is Dr. Gunning's mother, to walk out of the church and say, you know, that's not him. You know, that's not the man that we later learn. <laughs> it sounds so soap opera. Like, we later learn that she was in love with and had a child by. Um, you know, he's clearly been corrupted in some way. Um, by this vampire blood into this sort of vision of of power and of of a kind of warlike um uh version of Jesus which is there there you know there is there's evidence for that in the bible along with the pacifist 
side of Jesus. So, you know, everybody in this, everybody in this series is, or who is in the church is quoting scripture, and it's mostly, um, you know, legit, but you know, it's at total cross purposes, which is which we know happens. But I mean, it feels like all of these characters believe this when they say this. But the opposition to that, that church militant, I have come with a sword rhetoric of conversion, there is the sacrifice of the, you know, the non-vampire characters. So w- when the when those characters give their lives to save mankind basically, they are literally Christ-like. And um there is something really powerful and beautiful about that. And they know that's what they're doing and they willingly choose to do it. Um so, you know, we see both sides of the role that faith can have in people's lives. Well, you mentioned the idea of the characters sacrificing themselves, and I would like to talk about that more. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, so, Laura, you were mentioning the idea of kind of Christ-like sacrifice in this, and um, this this series, unlike the two hauntings, doesn't have a sort of showcase episode in the middle where a you know kind of a big secret is is required, but it does have, I think, arguably sort of the biggest um, twist in any of these, which is at the. Uh, in the fifth episode, at the end of the fourth episode, um, Riley, who we've, you know, been been sort of really told to see as the main character of the story, it's his coming home to Crockett Island that gets things started. Um, he is; it's his interactions with Father Paul through the under the rubric of sort of Alcoholics Anonymous meetings that the the series big discussions about um, the sort of tension between, uh, you know, faith and atheism really come into play. Um, at the end of the fourth episode, he is attacked by the vampire creature and killed, not to put too fine a point on it, um, and, you know, rejuvenated as a vampire creature and then spends most of the fifth episode kind of explaining how that happened to uh, the character played by Kate Siegel, who is uh, Mike Flanagan's wife, who you probably recognize from um, his other series, pushing her out in a rowboat towards the rising sun. Um, and then eventually culminates in saying, well, you know, this, I told you this whole thing that happened to me, 
you wouldn't believe it if I just told you, um, but I really need you to believe me and get off the island. Um, so now we're just going to sit out here in this rowboat until the sun comes up and I burst into flame and emulate with two hours left to go in the show. <laughs> so what did you make of that? Did you see that coming? Were you shocked by that? Um, at a certain point when they were out in the boat and she says, well, now I can't get away while you're telling me this. And he says, no, we're out here not because you can't get away, but because I can't get away. Um, but at a certain point, I was like, he's not going to hurt her. You know, like you you sort of think, oh, well, maybe he's going to try to make her be one of them. You know, like you, you run through all of the possible scenarios for why this is happening. And then shortly before he said it, I realized that that's what he intended to do. Because this is a character who is haunted by the um, teenage girl who he killed in this drunk driving accident who we see her body just sort of lying on the pavement. He's looking at her in in the very first scene of, of the series. And then every time he goes to bed, he sees this this battered girl looking at him, you know, like like he just that is a fact of his life. And um he's he's he you know he who's already a little bit suicidal, I would say, to begin with. And so when when I said, well, maybe he's just going to let himself, you know, meet the sun, as uh, some trashy vampire novel I once read referred to it, um, (laughs) I was like, oh, that's what he's going to do. And what's interesting about that is that in the sort of American pop culture horror thriller scenario it's like something happens to the hero he realizes that he has no choice to fight and then he goes in and he goes i'm gonna get him and he and he goes and he 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 fights for you know to defeat the bad guy and then at the last minute when you think everything is lost he manages to save the day and and this was just such a striking difference just the sort of passivity of simply allowing himself to be disintegrated <laughs> in order to save her is was really striking like visually striking and emotionally striking i mean it's just one of the many aspects of this that i feel sort of i don't want to say transcend the genre cuz the genre can do so much but really do, do, does something fresh with the genre instead of something formulaic Right. I mean, I get the feeling um, you mentioned earlier. I mean, I, the, the series in seven and a half hours or whatever is, I mean, it does not use the word vampire once. Right. Um, and so, I mean, there are clearly uh, tropes in it that will, you know, many people will recognize and, the, you know, the uh, sort of union between vampirism and Catholicism has its own pretty storied history. And he is certainly you know, playing into and drawing off all of that. But I do also think he is trying to do things, um, either different things with the genre or just, you know, sort of work outside of the genre a little bit, um, you know, just to the left of it in some ways. This isn't a radical reinvention like um, like Abel Ferrara's The Addiction, for example, which is a basically sort of a, you know, downtown New York drug addict movie that just happens to be about vampires instead. Um uh, but, you know, you do, because he's 
kind of monkeying with a little bit, it does prevent you from always knowing what's going to happen next. And I think that's a real boon to it. I mean, it's interesting to think of this, you know, in the context of some of the other things he did, because um, Dr. Sleep, which is the the Shining sequel that he directed, um, and and obviously Stephen King wrote the book and the plot and um, the whole, you know, the whole reason that he wrote a novel to the shining is he hated what Stanley Kubrick did with his original novel. So there was going to be no major deviation in the film adaptation of, of the novel. Um, But nonetheless, it is interesting that that is also a movie that ends with the main character, the grown up Danny Torrance played by Ewan McGregor, who is a, struggled with, you know, various forms of addiction throughout his life. Um, Literally sort of meeting the same fate. He decides to stay behind in the Overlook Hotel and get burned up in order to save um, a young woman from meeting the same fate. So there's kind of no way out of addiction um, in this little cosmos that he's building. The best thing the addict can do is just sacrifice themselves so that other people can... uh, live a life free of this. Um, And that's, you know, sort of interesting and complicated in a certain way, especially from someone who is, you know, seems to be at least currently successfully um, going through recovery himself. Um, But then that, you know, plays into the end of this whole story where it turns out that there's basically no way out for anybody. Right. Except for the two kids at the very end. Yes. Um, yeah, so why don't we sort of talk about, um, you know, there, there's so much to get to in this. And I think even in a, you know, a podcast like this, even a podcast like this, we can't get into it. But I think it's worth um, dealing with the whole sort of, you know, final movement as it is. Because it's really when, um, you know, I think it's when this, the story kind of really starts to come together. You get, you know, it spends, you know, very leisurely and i i think you know enjoyable time but almost a kind of like hangout movie pace Mm -hmm. um for most of the first half just like kind of letting you see crocodile island and these people and really not telling you even what kind of story this is um and then once it gets into the last you know two hours um there's there's a whole lot of um event going on so a bit laura do you want to maybe just sort of walk through a little bit of what's what's going on so it begins with um, this this Easter mass that um, everybody sort of winds up going to, and this is going to be the basically the forced conversion of the entire um, congregation. Um, and we also have the splendidly blasphemous image of the vampire creature coming in in these sort of clerical vestments. I, it doesn't seem to speak ever. This creature. It's very monstrous in a way that vampires usually aren't um, the, anymore. You know, most vampires look like people in our current vampire stories. But this thing is so clearly monstrous. And you, you realize which of the townsfolk are the most contaminated with the vampire blood by how they respond to it. Um, Riley's parents are like, oh my God, let's get out of here. This is horrifying. And other people are like Bev or whatever. They're just like, hey, great. 
How could anyone think that was an angel? It has literally bat wings, not feather wings. Yeah, so I, I think that's like that's a really kind of interesting thing that happens as this story goes, you know, towards its conclusion is it's really playing a lot with the idea of you know, faith and uh, mysteries is a word that Father Paul uses. And he mentioned earlier sort of the the idea of the faith militant. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting is in this climactic sermon that Father Paul gives at St. Patrick's, he starts talking about um, basically, you know, ho- sort of holy war, you know, being a warrior in God's right. service. But he says, but he says, you know, this is not about country. You know, God does not want you to fight for your country. God wants you to fight for him. Um, and that's when things sort of start to split off a little bit. He is um, one of the the sort of more important supporting characters is uh, the town's uh, sheriff, played by Rahul Coley, who's a sort of veteran of uh, he was the, he was in the haunting of Bly Manor. He plays the town's new sheriff, um, who is Muslim. Um, and so is, you know, one of the people who is not in church, um, not taking communion. Riley, you know, at one point I thought was going to be saved because because he no longer is a, a believer, um, was not, you know, sat back during communion and was therefore not drinking the blood-dosed communion wine. Um, but then he uh, gets sort of more directly injected with the vampire blood. Um, but then the, the town sheriff comes in in the middle of this sermon and shoots Father Paul Right in the head, um, which even for somebody who is fully vampired out at this point, does take him out of commission <laughs> for a while. And then Bev, who we've come to realize, like Father Paul is a true believer, and he's also right. clearly delusional. He, you know, he has come to believe, um, possibly through some outside influence. You know, the, the show kind of hems and haws a little bit about like whether. Um, you know, God or the devil exists or whether the thing is, it was the thing as a demon or just some kind of, you know, ancient creature. But he does talk about hearing its voice in his head and sort of eventually taking orders from it. So there's some kind of psychic bond being formed there. But he, he does, I mean, one of the things that's so good about Linklater's performance is he does really walk a line where you know, you believe in him as a real person of faith, albeit one that's been, you know, horribly, catastrophically misled. Um, but he is not, you know, in, in a way, kind of never gets the sort of full-on evil treatment. And it's really Bev, um, this kind of sanctimonious church lady, who's the real heavy of the piece. And once Father Paul becomes, you know, incapacitated in the midst of this, Kind of final conversion ceremony, which it's not entirely clear exactly how he planned it to work. Um, but <laughs> once he's out, um, Bev goes whole hog. She has basically set up a kind of Jonestown buffet for these <laughs> worshipers who by now have had enough vampire blood that when they, d- you know, that if they kill themselves, they're not go- just going to die, they're going to be reanimated. Um, so all the ones who have quote unquote true faith um, drink this, you know, rat cleaner, um, kill themselves, um, come back to life. And then all the people in the church who did not have the sufficient faith to just drink poison 
um, are then by then uh, Bev and her helpers have locked the doors to this one room church, um, and everyone who's still in there is consumed by the vampires who then go and um, set out to consume everyone else on the island, um, which is not that many people, but some you know some more than you know even a full St. Patrick's can hold. So all the unbelievers are then sort of slated at this vampire lunch at that point. Um, and that, you know, and that's when, you know, there's sort of little pieces that it kind of comes, you know, in, in fits and starts, the sort of true horror of what they did. Um, you know, but at one point there's this, uh, uh sort of newly, you know, vamped out congregant who, um, who talks about how he, you know, killed, his wife and child um, because of this, this blood hunger in him. And I, I think truly the coldest moment in the whole thing. And this is someone who was kind of a, basically a Christmas and Easter Catholic, you know, so Bev sort of looks down on, but um, you know, I guess he, you know, he, he drank the poison. So I guess he has some belief in it. Um, but then it turns out that instead of killing them, you know, if he had, you know, fed them his blood instead of drinking theirs, he could have turned them into vampires and given them eternal life as well. And Bev just very coldly informs him of that. Like, well, if you paid more attention in church, you wouldn't have had to murder your whole family. <laughs> and that's where the most of your blood, like really runs cold. Like she's just, she's so, there's such a cold pleasure that she takes in informing him of that. Yeah, the revenge of the church lady, like the person who this is all she has in her life. She has worked it for all it, she could get from it. I mean, she's obviously a very selfish person, but, you know, she's always paid attention in church. And so here is this person who dared to think that there was more to life than that. And, and as a result, he has no life at all because he's destroyed his entire family. Yeah. Um, so this is, I, I mean, it's, I, I will say like this sort of ending movement, like feels a little more ordained than organic in terms of like all the various plot machinations that mm -hmm. have to take place at the same time to make this ending come together the way that it does. Um, but it, it, there's so much momentum going at this point, um, that it feels it kind of works for me. It really depends on how, it really depends, it hinges on the character of Beth, because um, even after uh, Father Paul comes to, he's mostly sitting in the church with Mildred talking about their past and how they uh, wasted their love for each other. Um, and how he was hoping for a second chance. And um, and she basically tells him, well, I never would have left my husband for you <laughs> anyway. Um, so it was all kind of an illusion. Um, but, you know, Bev is just possessed with this sort of um, kind of a pop apocalyptic furor. And so she decides that they should burn the whole town down except for the church um, so that everyone is either eaten by vampires or if they're a vampire, they're forced to into the building and under her control. And, um, and that is kind of the 
craziest moment, but at the same time, it's not completely out of character. You know, she has, is just completely carried away by the fact that she hates the fact that anybody else has any life that is not the church, because she doesn't have any life that is not the church. And this is her revenge. You know, she she hates the community, really. And that is one of the things that um, that is interesting about this uh, treatment of faith here, is that it's very clear that what makes Father Paul a good priest, despite the fact that he uh, is a vampire, <laughs> is that... Um, he understands that the community of believers is essential to the experience, to, to, to faith, you know, that it's not just you and your relationship to God, because these people are not Protestants. Um, it is about your relationship to the church, your relationship to the community. And um, one of the things that is such a struggle for the sheriff is that he kind of came to this came to this island to get away from um, his former life as a cop because he felt he was complicit in, in um, spying on and possibly harming other Muslims. And then he comes to this town where he has no community. It's just him and his son worshiping alone, and they don't have a mosque. There's something kind of tragic about that, but he never really talks about it, and it's not clear that he understands how important that thing is that's missing from his life. Um, Bev's scheme is to just force everybody. I mean, she's a, a tyrant, basically, not a shepherd. And, and this is exactly the thing that <laughs> ends up uh, destroying her. Right. Well, she has, she has this sort of two-part plan um which is to you know the plan is to get everybody in the island first they disable all the boats so that nobody can leave before this easter vigil mass uh but then they're going to re-enable the boats and once all the people are turned into vampires um send them out into the world as this vampire plague and you know clearly we've seen the zombie movies once that happens it's all over um but her part of her plan to force everybody onto the boats is, you know, she decides at some point kind of, you know, just spur of the moment, like, why don't we burn every house on the Island except for the church and the rec center? Um, so they, so they do this. Um, meanwhile, um, Aaron and her sort of small band of non vamped out resistors have gone around and they've burned all the boats. Um, so it turns out, you know, that this, you know, and then um, eventually, you know, the church gets set on fire um, and then the rec center gets set on fire. Um, and so there are no buildings left and there are no boats to leave. Um, and me meanwhile, you know, and meanwhile, everybody on the island except for Riley's younger brother and um, Lisa, who is the, the young woman who is, you know, given back her ability to walk, basically the kind of only representation or almost the only representation of the younger generation on this island. Um, they are off in a boat in the water, but everyone else who stay behind 
um, is killed in the process of setting things up or, or at least mortally wounded in the process of setting things up for this end game. Um, but then eventually, yes, the vampires are kind of like deprived of all um, shelter with the sun coming up. Um, we've already seen, thanks to Riley, exactly what happens um, when they're in the sunlight and it comes up and hey, presto, they all go up in flames at the same moment. Um, so, you know, really the entire population of Crockett Island minus two um, is toast. Yeah, there is a really an, an interesting like subplot in this sort of giant conflagration story, which is Riley's mother and father, who um, who although they have been made into vampires, they've been killed in the sort of carnage inside the church, and then they are revived, and they're sort of walking around the town, and everything's sort of glowing to them, which is how we know that they've become fully vamped out. So they refrain, though, from attacking anyone. And um, and that is this sort of little redemptive note in there of how someone who has been contaminated with this... Um, with this curse or disease or whatever is actually capable of not harming another person. And they kind of are walking through it's, it's a very weird, like eerie um, sort of scene, you know, they're walking through this village and, and there's this kind of carnage all around them and people screaming and people being dragged down and, and murdered and the bat creature flying around and they're just sort of walking through it just you know horrified and realizing i think in their own way that they're just not going to allow themselves to be caught up in this at one point riley's mother uh sacrifices herself uh as a distraction so that the uh humans who are going to burn the boats can get away. And, um, and before she does that, she makes a speech about, you know, scrabbling after another uh, 15 seconds or, you know, few minutes of life, you know, like we all we talk about, um, you know, our belief in the afterlife and how amazing it's going to be. But in the end, you know, we're just scratching and scrabbling to stay alive for as long as we possibly can. And uh, that's picked up really nicely in the big conclusion when the the characters are on the beach and Bev is like, sees that the sun's coming up and she starts digging in the sand as if she's going to try to dig a hole to bury herself in to hide from the light. But of course, it doesn't work. But that is different from what um, Riley's parents do. They are like Riley himself and the other characters sort of recognize that it's their time to go, that the best thing that they can do for themselves is to, is to just <laughs> check out, so to speak. Right. I mean, they're all going to die at that point. Um, as indeed are we all. Um, and it, it, it becomes about facing that. I mean, we, we, uh, you know, probably don't have time to talk about these in, in detail, but one of the sort of major exchanges in the whole series is between Riley and Aaron. Um, it is right after she, um, she is, is pregnant, um, has, 
you know, the, the baby is the product of an abusive marriage, which she has gotten out of, um, but she has decided to keep it, has come home. It's kind of the one good thing in her life that she's looking forward to. And then one day she kind of sort of miscarries, except it, the baby just vanishes. Um, and eventually we find out that this is because, you know, her, her immune system is kind of supercharged by the vampire blood and, and it has seen this fetus as, you know, a uh, invasive growth in her body and basically just consumed it. Um, but you know, she, all she knows at this point is that her baby is, is dead. Um, and Riley is, is, you know, still very much racked with guilt over the young woman that he killed. So they, they start talking about what happens after you die, where you go. And, and, um, you know, they both give this sort of very beautiful in very different ways account of one, uh, kind of deeper religious illustration of her baby, um, you know, basically going up to heaven and, and meeting God and waiting for her and Riley of your body's nervous system shutting down and, um, you're, you know, flooding with, with DMT, which gives you this, you know, these amazing visions as your brain is going into oxygen death. Um, and then that all, uh, kind of comes back at the end and, and sort of, um, flip flops in a way as, as a piece that uh, we're running this week by the, the great uh, Catholic critic, uh, Stephen Gray Dennis points out, um, he has the sort of transmits transcendent, uh, revelation at the moment of death where he, um, achieves some kind of, you know, forgiveness from the woman that he killed. And she, um, and she is kind of killed by the vampire creature as she is reaching up and, and tearing its wings to shreds with a knife so that it can't just fly off and go infect some other community. And she has this sort of, you know, looking up at the cosmos, wifty, becoming one with the stars and the molecules um, kind of death. Well, she also has a line, I am that I am, which is God's line. That's that's yes. something that God says in the Bible. So she's sort of becoming God <laughs> in a way. It's, it's pretty trippy, yeah. I mean, Riley's speech about what he believed the afterlife was like, I, I mean, I'm just, I'm very appreciative of any series where two people sit and talk about, I know the yes, they are monologues. <laughs> They're not very dramatic. But I was just struck by how unusual it is to see two people just sitting and talking about something that is really important to almost everyone in some way, how you feel about this, in a, just a kind of a frank and and um, an eloquent way. Um, was one of the things I appreciate about the series is that it that he's willing to do that. Um, but uh, the thing that kind of uh, struck me about Riley's description is it is at one point he talks about dissolving. And I, I remember once I was hiking um, with a Buddhist friend and we were looking at a waterfall and it was, you know, like a kind of a sort of a coherent piece of water as it came over the end it was very high up and then as it fell down it kind of broke into a million different droplets and then it sort of came back together again in the pool at the bottom and she said 
that's how I, what I imagine death is like. You just dissolve, but then eventually you come back into the whole thing again. And he said something so similar to that, that um, I wondered if it was possibly sort of a, a kind of a Buddhist idea that had sort of crept into this, even though he is obviously not a Buddhist. Yeah, I mean, I think there's sort of a little kind of pan-spiritualist, like, new age in his um, thing, which is, I mean, which is probably, if I had to, if you made me answer the question, I would probably (laughs) say something like that, too. So I'm by no means sitting in judgment over it. I I do think, I mean, I, I, uh, I, you know, I don't know precisely how Mike Flanagan identifies at this precise moment. Um, This does seem to me to be a fundamentally kind of atheist at the very least agnostic, but I, but I do think it takes um, both points of view seriously. And for example, when uh, you know, Aaron, the character, you know, says like, you know, when she's processing the grief of her, her, uh, child, and she says to Riley, "Like, will you pray with me?" Knowing that he is he is a self proclaimed atheist at this point, um, and he says yes. And it is not a series that's like, "Whoa, that's weird." This person wants to pray. Like, it just accepts that different people, and as you said, we're all kind of facing the same realities of mortality and trying to find meaning in life, and yada yada. And we come to it in our different ways. And I and I think it is a series that. Um, and it's weird how uncommon this is in popular culture, but I, it's very rare for something to get the balance right. I do feel like it respects equally the various, you know, and, and to some extent incompatible ways that the various characters are are coming to it. And I really, I really appreciate that about this. Yeah, I mean, the 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 only real. I'm just going to put sin in quotes here because I don't, I really doubt that Flanagan believes in the concept of sin. The only real sin here is to not really face this, which is, I think, some of, you know, the the, the negative characters like Bev. Uh, she is so fully invested in herself um, that, uh, that, I don't know, you know, she, I mean, she is one of the characters who supposedly for all her devoutness um, cannot face death at the end with any kind of dignity. Right. Right. Well, and I think that is, is meant to show you among other things that as kind of, you know, sanctimonious and sort of, uh, I don't know, pharisaical, I guess, as she is about her faith as loudly as she proclaims it. Um, she really doesn't, on some level, trust it. She kind of trusts in the power that she's accrued, and she enjoys the ability to um, kind of invoke her moral superiority over others. But you know, at the at the very elemental level of believing that death is a passage into a life in which you are closer to God, um, she does not have faith. Right. Uh, I, I would agree with that. It's it's an interesting um, question about about that character, but I mean, how the characters face the end of their lives is really the sort of the final sort of t- litmus test of what of their goodness, really, right? Um, as right. much as 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 their faith, 
Right. Because, yeah, because there is a point at which they all know that they're going to die. <laughs> and so the only thing left is to decide how they're going to reckon with that inescapable fact. Right. And it's weird that it's not more depressing, <laughs> given that yes. everybody dies, practically. Yes. And the end, it's like a Shakespeare play in that way, <laughs> you know? Um, well, you know, I mean, the, the guy makes horror movies. I mean, everybody in his movies dies. So, yeah. um yeah. You, know, you just have to get used to it at a certain point. Um, all right. Well, I think that uh, pretty much brings us to the end of our uh, spoiler special. Before we go, Laura, um, since I assume you have an opinion on this, uh, Mike Flanagan has announced that his next um, project for Netflix is uh, sort of, it's called The Fall of the House of Usher, is going to be drawing on, you know, like The Haunting of Bly Manor, just drawing on Edgar Allan Poe's works in general. Uh what are your feelings about the prospects there? So excited. And there are a couple of reasons why. One is that I think that the morbidity of Flanagan's work is much more closely aligned to that of Poe than to either Shirley Jackson or Henry James. So I feel like it's like they vibe together more uh, harmoniously. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that he's always been very interested in family stories. And of course, the fall of the House of Ushers is about the the fall of a family. And uh, it's also about uh, denying death. Um, and I'm also very excited because the novelist Matt Johnson worked on it, and he is one of my favorite writers. So, uh, and he wrote an amazing book called Pym about one of uh, Poe's uh, longer pieces, and that should be that should be very interesting. I would expect that there might be some stuff about race in it because Matt's working on it, and that would also. I, I mean, I'm just really excited. <laughs> what can I say? I mean, I think that the 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 idea of an old family is such a um, such a rich one for horror because it is both, you know, a a thing that people value, but then also a terrible kind of a, a curse, you know, as well. And um, I think uh, that it's going to be fantastic. All right. Well, that is. A, a, a more optimistic <laughs> note than I thought we could possibly end on. So I'm going to get out of here quickly before I ruin it. Um, so that's our show. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast feed. And if you like this show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producers are Cleo Levin and Ashley Saluja. For Laura Miller, I'm Sam Adams. Thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.